Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lynn. Before we consider today's scripture reading and today's message, I want to say words of gratitude and appreciation to the many people who make worship possible every Sunday morning, our hospitality team, the people who are involved in ministry of all age groups throughout the church. I want to say special thanks to the orchestra and ensemble that's joined us this morning. Also want to say words of gratitude to folks who volunteer in children's and youth ministry, not just on Sunday mornings and not just on Sunday evenings, but particularly on overnight events. Uh, Friday into Saturday, we had a lock-in here for the third grade Bible kids. Next week, we have a weekend retreat for confirmation and for youth. And those things are just not possible without an army of adult volunteers who not only give their time and their energy, but sleep on cots and in sleeping bags overnight to make all those things possible. Uh, and I'm so incredibly thankful for the people who volunteer and support in that way. I'll have you know, if you've never volunteered on something like that, Every single adult who's ever volunteered to be on an overnight retreat, whether it's for third graders or 12th graders, every single one of them is terrified. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit prevails and something incredible happens. I'll actually be one of those volunteers. Uh, I'll be a part of one of the confirmation retreat volunteers next Saturday. I can't wait. And I just want to say a word of gratitude and thanksgiving to the people who make that all possible. My name is Lance Marshall. I'm the senior pastor here at the First United Methodist Church of Fort Worth. Welcome, whether you're a longtime member or a first-time visitor or guest. I'm so thankful that you're with us. And I want to start today with a bit of a confession, if that's okay. I want to share with you something that I've done multiple times that is obnoxious. And I'm not proud of it. And my hope is in confessing it to the 9.30 service and then again to you here at 11 o'clock that I can get it out of my system. And so when the next opportunity to do so arises, I don't do this obnoxious thing I've done multiple times. Okay, that's kind of how confession works. So let's see. So it, it always arises in a certain situation. I'm in a social environment. There's people that I don't know around me, and I'll end up talking to another guy about my age. And we're doing the, you know, the generic get-to-know-you thing, you know, what college football teams do you root for, how big is your Yeti, you know, guy stuff. And we're having those conversations, and this has happened probably about 10 times in the last five years. And, the, you know, kind of what do you do for a living? will come up. And I'll end up saying, I'm a pastor at a church. And what this guy will say, it's a different guy. I want to point out, he started it. <laughs> he started it. Without prompting, what happens is this guy who I've just met, having learned that I'm a pastor, obviously he doesn't go to this church because we just met, having learned that I'm a pastor, what he will say is, you know, I love our church. I love what it does for us. I love what it does for our family. But you know, we just haven't been able to make it in so long because our time is so full with youth sports. That's what he'll say to me. And what I say is, you know what? I actually get it. When I was in junior high, in high school, I was one of those huge youth sports kids. I played soccer all the time. We had multiple practices throughout the week. We had games every weekend in faraway cities, including multiple tournaments around the country and even internationally. And it would have our family out of town almost every single weekend. In fact, I was one of those kids who said to my parents, I don't want to go to church. I want to go play on this very competitive team and devote all of my time and energy to it. And then that guy will say, so you get it. 
And I'll say, I get it. And then I'll say, and you know what? When I was 25 years old and lying in that hospital bed, dying of cancer, all of those years of youth soccer did nothing for me. Oh, can you imagine? This guy's just trying to enjoy a barbecue. <laughs> and then someone drops an absolute bomb like that. And then I always end up saying like, well, you know, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> and then he usually erupts into a thousand pieces of ashes, like the end of a Marvel movie. It's obnoxious, and I'm not going to do it again. Most likely. <laughs> I'm not going to do it again. The reason I'm not going to do it again is that it's going to bring up feelings of like shame or frustration or feeling judged in that guy's life. And that's the absolute opposite of what I want. It's worth reflecting though, what do I want? Why do I feel the need to say something like that to a guy that I've never met? I don't know him. I don't know his story. I don't know his family. Why do I feel the need so strongly to say that? You know, it's not just because I'm trying to boost the youth ministry attendance numbers at this other church, right? I mean, that'd be nice, but that's not my goal. The reason is because I know for a fact, based on personal and ministry experience, is that something hard is going to happen in the life of that family. Something incredibly difficult that shakes the very foundation of that teenager's life to its core will happen. It will. And I desperately want for them to be ready when it does. You know, if this faith thing is just learning facts about Jesus, I mean, you can get that done in a weekend. If this faith thing is just believing in Jesus, you can just say, I believe in Jesus. But if faith is about building your life on a solid rock that can sustain you when everything around you is falling apart, that takes something more. That takes trust. That takes faith. And that takes time. So, I don't get invited out socially very much <laughs> anymore, but please don't cross me off your guest list. I promise to be on my best behavior. But when it comes to faith and trust and belief, we need to have an understanding of Christ's power, Christ's actual power and authority. And today's scripture reading is key to that. If you'll remember, over the last few weeks of scripture reading, Jesus has been proclaiming the nature of the kingdom of God, the new thing that God is up to in and through him, the promises of God's provision and work, the good news that he's come to proclaim. And in the midst of that, he's not just saying and teaching, but he's displaying his power. He's got power to heal people from illnesses. He has power to rebuke and cast out evil spirits. He has power for the forgiveness of sins. He has real power. He can make a difference. In the previous verses, he's been teaching people, and there was a big crowd on the side of the lake, and so he pushed out in a boat along with his disciples so that his voice would project alongside the water so that more people could hear him clearly. After he's done teaching, he tells his disciples, we don't need to go back to shore. We don't need to get stuff. I want you to take me to the other side. 
Like Mark alluded to in his children's message, going to the other side is very rich factually and symbolically. From the Sea of Galilee, in the other side of the Sea of Galilee is a place where faithful Jewish people don't go. Living on the other side of that lake are pagans, are heathens, are people not like us, and we don't go there, we don't go to them. But Jesus does. It's an act of trust even to begin to take him. So that's what they do. And a storm rises up. We call it the Sea of Galilee. What it really is is a very large lake. It has some topographical characteristics. There's some hills that surround it that allow for winds to be funneled and focused when they blow in in a certain direction, making them exponentially more powerful with very little notice. It's a large and open body of water, which means winds can travel over its surface for a great distance, building up waves. And in addition, the lake also happens to be relatively shallow in comparison to how wide it is, which means waves can get very big, very fast. That's the nature of living in and on the Sea of Galilee. The men that are in the boat with Jesus are fishermen. This is their job. This is their trade. They grew up on this water. They know how it behaves. They know how it acts. They know what it is to be out on the Sea of Galilee. They've been in a storm before. They've been in hundreds of storms before. And this storm is not like that, those storms. The waves are breaking in over the side of their relatively shallow boat. Water's beginning to collect in the bottom, which means you can't steer or control it anymore. And if you can't steer the boat into the waves, that means they're coming over the broadside, which means just one or two or three more waves and your boat is sinking. Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. If they're worried, if they're fearful that they're at the very edge of their life, he certainly isn't. They wake him up. They say, please do something. And we lose a little bit of the nuance in the English translation, but it's important to understand how Jesus speaks to the elements. Jesus doesn't have meteorological knowledge. He doesn't use a sailor's trick. He doesn't do something magical. What he does is command. The word in the original Greek helps us understand that he commands because he is in charge. He commands the winds and the waves to stop. And it doesn't go from a very deadly storm to a safer storm. It doesn't go from a scary moment to a less scary moment. It goes to the worst storm that these fishermen have ever seen and their combined hundreds of storms of experience to completely and totally calm because Jesus commanded it. And when he does that, Bells start going off in their heads in ways that don't make them feel comfortable because these are good Jewish men. They've grown up their entire lives hearing the scriptures. They know that it is God alone who commands the winds and the waves, who separates them from the chaos in the opening chapters of Genesis. They know that it is God who commands the water when Moses is leading the people of Israel out. They know that God is the one who stirs up and quiets the storm in Jonah. They know that God over and over and over again in the Psalms is the one who responds to the sailors and calms the waters, who rebukes the waves. They know that it is God's voice 
voice alone that has this kind of authority. And a person with that authority looks them right in the eyes and says, why are you afraid? Don't you have trust yet? One of the things that I like to do when I'm guiding people in discipleship, and when I'm talking about discipleship, that means moving from just having knowledge about Jesus, you know, facts about Jesus, and even beyond believing things about Jesus, but actually learning to trust in, rely on Jesus to make a difference in your everyday life. That's what discipleship is about. One of the things that I like to do is, is ask people, share with me something that's really upset you over the course of the last week, something that bothered you, something that had you talking to the windshield the next day later, you know, that kind of thing. And people end up telling me a story about something that happened with their coworker or their spouse or their child or their adult sibling. And let's just share an example. No one's actually ever given this example, but it's a good example. That someone might say, you know, what's still bothering me. It's four days later, but I'm still upset over the big blowout that I had with my spouse over the dishes. And so the question I'll ask is, well, why did that upset you? I understand that you're upset. Well, why did that upset you? Well, we've had this conversation 50 times. This is something that keeps coming up. Okay, and we keep digging. Well, why does that upset you? Well, if we've talked about it 50 times and nothing has still changed, then I feel like I'm not being respected. Okay, why? I get really annoying. Why does that bother you? If the person I love and I've spent my life with and who loves me in return is still making me feel unrespected, maybe I'm not worthy of respect. Now we're talking. That's what I call the thing behind the thing. And when something has got us so upset or so worried days later, it's usually because it's touched on the thing behind the thing, some bad news that we've come to believe in our hearts about our belonging, our security, our significance, our worth, or our value, and it's upset us. But the good news is that Jesus has good news for whatever it is that has you so upset. And so I teach people to learn how it is that we can apply that good news in the face of those hard things. Why are you afraid, Jesus asked these men. He knows why they're afraid. He wants them to dig in. Well, I'm afraid because there's a storm. Why does that bother you? I'm, I'm afraid because our ship might sink. Why does that bother you? Well, if our ship sinks, I might drown. Why does that bother you? Well, if I drown, I die. Why does that bother you? If I die, it's over. My life is over. My, my being is over. My relationship with the people I love is over. Your work, your good news, your kingdom, it's all just over. Oh, he might say, don't you have any trust yet? The word in Greek gets translated into our English, sometimes faith, sometimes belief, sometimes trust based on the context of the sentence and what the translator thinks we need to know, but it's the same word for the same things. Don't you have any trust yet? Don't you have any belief yet? Don't you have any faith yet? 
something incredible happened that shaped the future of the history of the movement that became Methodism 288 years ago this week. Don't you love when you research something and you find out that this is the anniversary of this happening? It makes you feel so smart and organized. Anyway, I'm really smart and organized, and so I knew that this was the week. This was the anniversary, January 25th, 1736. Something special happened. A man named John Wesley was on a ship. John Wesley was 33 years old at the time. He was an ordained priest in the Anglican church. He graduated from Oxford, which is an okay school. He was a guest lecturer there after his ordination, and he's obviously smart. He's incredibly well-educated. He knows all there is to know about Christ, and he believes all there is to believe about Christ. He is a man of deep faith. But on this boat, there's another group of passengers that is intriguing to him. It's a group of Germans. They're a part of a religious group called the Moravians. They're a part of what's called the German Pietist Movement. And a brief summary of the German Pietist Movement are people that have really, really deeply focused on experiencing the good news of Christ's presence and power in their work in a way that they know will change them from the inside out. That's a, a basic summary of the Pietist Movement. Even though he's a Christian and this boat is full of Christians, to John Wesley, these Moravians stick out. The way that they're different the peace that they have, the hope that they have, the serenity that they have because of their faith is incredible to him. And it comes to a culmination on January 25th, 1736, when a storm brews up off the Atlantic coast of the United States and John Wesley and the crew and the captain and everybody on that ship is 100% certain that they are going to die. And they are despairing. They are wailing. They are grieving. They are losing their minds, except for the Moravians who are singing and praying and happy in the face of the worst storm that anybody's ever seen. And they survive, and John Wesley's talking to the leader of the Moravians afterwards, and he's saying, how do you have that kind of peace? How do you have that kind of serenity? How do you have that kind of hope? Not just the men, but the women and the children, your entire group. How? They have faith in Christ. They have trust in Christ. They have belief in Christ. And it's not rooted in knowledge. It's rooted in the practice over and over and over again of facing their fears and asking themselves, what do I really believe? And the answer and in their hearts and in their lives over and over again is that Christ is who he says he is, that Christ will do what he says he'll do, that Christ is the one who does save and does sustain and is here now and forever. And when he says he makes a place for us, we believe it. And when he says we will go there too, we believe it. And when he says, he will make for us life eternal. We have trust in it. We have faith in it. And it changes everything about how we live, even in the face of a storm. John Wesley realizes, I've got all the knowledge and I've got all the belief, but they've got something I'm missing. 
and it changes his life. And the rest of his life and his ministry and the Methodist movement that came through it is so that people could have the kind of faith, belief, and trust in Christ, the kind of understanding that their life is built on the solid foundation of his power, that when the unthinkable happens, they can know that they will be well. So, I ask you to think of the promises that Christ has made to you. Think now of the promises that Christ has made to you, promises to love you, promises to be there for you, promises to sustain you, promises that your life will extend into life eternal. And my question is, do you believe it? I mean, do you have trust in it? Do you have faith in it? Because when you do, it sets you free. The phone is going to ring in every single one of our lives. The call is going to come. The moment is going to happen. Every single one of us experiences tragedy and heartbreak and loss. Every one of, these, of us will experience thousands of times, big and small, that make our heart drop to the floor. And instead of being controlled by fear, every moment of fear is an invitation to ask, what do you actually believe? Why are you afraid? And whatever it is that has absolutely made you lose hope, don't you realize that Christ's power is greater still? And may that moment guide you into faith and trust and hope in the one that promises it will all be well. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I wish so badly that your promise is that we would never experience a storm. I wish your promise was that we would never experience pain, that everything would be harmonious and happy and easy for every person in this room at every turn. I wish that was the promise. But your promise is greater still. Your promise is that no matter the storm, no matter the pain, no matter the disunity, the disharmony, the difficulty, that your love, your power, your grace, and your goodness is greater still. Lord, whatever it is that causes us to fear, help us pause. Help us to dig into why it is that our hearts are so stirred and help us to have faith and trust to live into our belief in you now and forever. Lord, when you calm the waters, when you still the wind, you do so that we might know that you have the authority then, now, and forever. So it's trusting and believing and building our lives on the faith that you are who you say you are, that together we pray the words that you taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
Amen.